Hello and welcome to the Vine Life Podcast. I'm Tony Clark. And once again, I have the privilege of having Dr. Jeffrey Seif on the program. Now, Jeff, Dr. Jeffrey Seif is certainly a biblical scholar. Uh, you may see him on the program, Our Jewish Roots, formerly known as uh, Zola Levitt Ministries. I think it still goes by that name in some form. Uh, but uh, what I would like to have Jeff on today to discuss is the importance of the modern state of Israel. And I think there's a lot of confusion within circles, within church circles. Um, is Israel still important? Does God still have a plan for his Jewish people? But without further ado, welcome to the program, Dr. Seif. Pleasure to be here. I appreciate you. Absolutely. So, Jeff, I, I just wanted to get you on, and, and it's kind of a laid-back discussion. But I see a lot um, from popular pastors, popular TV programs, popular podcasts, and they're very good podcasts. They're very biblically sound but many of them have the conclusion that uh, the modern state of Israel does not play into Scripture. In other words, the, the modern day, uh, the church after the cross has essentially replaced the nation of Israel. And I wanted to have you on to, to, to try and clear up some of those misconceptions. Uh, and, and if we could start here, I'd like to start with the modern state of Israel. Can you tell us how the modern state of Israel came into existence and and, and why is that important? Why is it significant? Well, it, it came into existence. Uh, there's returns uh, of uh, Jewish people to the ancestral homeland beginning in the late 1800s. There's a few waves, uh, but it's really spirited along uh, just before and uh, after the Holocaust. Um, so it was in the wake of the uh, destruction of six million Jews that I think it garnered a kind of shock effect on the world when they saw those pictures coming out of the Holocaust, which prompted individuals to be more kindly disposed toward Jews than they might otherwise be. I think that garnered some political support outside of Jewish culture for the Jewish return to the nation state of Israel. So uh, the, the, the state of Israel was reborn as a political entity in the wake of the war. Okay, and, and uh, so Israel, it's my understanding, came back into existence in the late 40s, 1948, is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Ed, tell me a little bit about uh, the Jewish people. I don't know of any other people group that has been preserved for thousands of years. Um, can you talk a little bit, bit about how the Jews have been preserved, their culture, their religion throughout the centuries? Well, and it's an astute observation, too, you know, that if you look at America, I mean, and uh, there's no disrespect to anyone who would be coming from, let's say, an American Indian background. Wars were fought and won and those were decided. I don't see a teepee being pitched on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. We're in America right now, and whatever was happening uh, beforehand belongs to, to history. I don't see it representing. I mention that because you wouldn't expect the Jews who were banished from the ancestral homeland for 2,000 years, you wouldn't expect a return. Uh, never mind the fact that uh, the return to the land and making a bid for statehood in the land was against all odds. I mean, with, with, with uh, troubles coming at you from every direction, you know, here you have ragtag militia, in effect, 
facing off against mechanized armies that are hell-bent on the destruction of the Jewish state. And uh, it probably wasn't just luck. I mean, there's an argument, there's miracle involved in the represence in the land of Israel, particularly when you consider the struggles associated with it. Yeah, and Jeff, aren't there Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning the, the Jews, God's chosen people being scattered and then coming back into their homeland? Well, if you look at uh, just Moses, who leads them to the land, according to the Deuteronomic text, Deuteronomy, uh, where Deuteronomy is articulated in the 40th year of the wilderness trek, they haven't even entered in yet. And therein, toward the end of Deuteronomy, says, listen, you're going in, but keep in mind, you're going to be scattered out, and then you're going to come back. Uh, there seems to be this uh, note in, in the Torah itself and beyond that in prophetic literature. Um, you know, prophets give voice to uh, a, a return to the ancestral homeland. So, Yeah, and, and you had the phrase against all odds, and it, it certainly seems against all odds that the Jews have come back. And not only have they come back into the homeland, but it's my understanding that not so many years ago, the land of Israel, what we know as Israel today, was nothing but a desert. Is that correct? Yes, it had been neglected for, for centuries, and uh, it was just the armpit of the ancient Near East. You wanted to see elegance, you went to Paris. You went to uh, Beirut, Lebanon, which was the Paris, the Middle East. There was other places to go. A lot of it was swampland. It just wasn't worked, and uh, it had fallen into decay and disarray. Uh, yeah, and if if you look at uh, Google satellite maps of Israel today, it looks very green. And and you look at the surrounding countries, the surrounding areas, they don't look so green. They don't look so prosperous. Uh, it's my understanding the the countries surrounding Israel that the people are basically poor, but the majority, if you will, of the nation of Israel, the people by and large are prospering. Um, yeah. Go ahead. If you looked at the gross national product of what was produced in the countries round about Israel, uh, Arab Muslim countries, and you took fossil fuels out of the equation, you know, fossil fuel, fuels were founded by uh, Western engineers who then turned around and built the pipeline and the structures to get it to the boats and then built the boats to take it to the markets. Now, of course, certain monies accrue to individuals that hold power uh, associated with those fields. But if you took fossil fuels out of the equation, if you look at the gross national product of Israel, it's greater than all the other countries round about it combined. And when you figure that uh, all this productivity is coming by a culture that is, has its hands tied behind it back because so much energy, financial and human power needs to go to the war effort for the Israeli defense forces, it really is quite something. And by the way, not only do you have more um, produced in Israel than everything else combined. But if you look at other attestations of to life, if you look at the number of museums per capita, greater than elsewhere, if you look at education per capita, Israel has more college, MA, PhDs in the workforce than anywhere else in the world. If you look at patents that come out every year, you know, that speak of innovation, Israel has more than anywhere. So uh, it really speaks to, of, of a starburst of energy and life that, to be sure, is reflected on a Google map. 
And by the way, it's just not readers of Google Maps that have taken notice. If you look at birds, uh, Israel has become a bird sanctuary because, you know, if you look at these birds that migrate, uh, they smell, they pick up, uh, you know, a photosynthesis and the energy and they look down and see green bird watchers from all over the world uh, go to Israel now to see uh, birds that land there as they're making their way from one continent to the next. It's a great pit stop, a great oasis for them. Amazing. And I read this today, Jeff, uh, it, concerning Israel being a modern miracle. It said Israel has become a global techni technological and entrepreneurial powerhouse. The recent Bloomberg Innovation Index, an annual ranking of countries that measures performance in research and development, technology education, patents, and other marks of techn technological prowess, if I can pronounce it, listed Israel at number five in the world, not to mention medical, military, and other leading agriculture uh, products as well. And, and Jeff, isn't this the modern state of Israel only about the size of, of the, the uh, state of New Jersey? Yes, it's, we're looking at the size of the state of New Jersey, never mind the fact that if you add the West Bank, which has now been annexed as, a, as an Islamic holding in the Gaza Strip, it narrows it even further, which again makes the point uh, all the more significant that to think that so much is coming out of so little. So with, with all of these technological advances, um, against all odds, as you said, that the Jews have come back into the homeland, Jeff, it seems like that, that God's sovereign hand is at work in here, that God is working and he's a keeper of promises. Am I reading that incorrect? Well, that's the argument. And if there's another way to explain it, I'd be interested in hearing it. It's just so you know, against all odds. I mean, if someone would go into your church and, and they're, they're, you've known them all their life and they, they, they go in and out in a wheelchair, you know, I mean, just hopelessly paralyzed from the neck down, all of a sudden they popped out of a wheelchair um, at some kind of healing prayer service. You probably wouldn't say what a great physician they have. You'd say what a great miracle. Uh, uh, and, and, and if you look... Uh, but, but the only ones that would know about the miracle were those that went to the church. Uh, it would certainly strengthen their faith to see God at work through that situation. But if you look at the emergence of a nation state miraculously, uh, it, it's something that's done on the world stage, not on the stage at First Baptist Church somewhere. And, and, and uh, it, it gives a kind of credence, especially if you look in biblical literature, when you look at promises to the Hebrew people, and you hear about them in perpetuity, uh, you hear about a reemergence uh, of, of the, the, the nation state. When you look at prophetic literature, uh, when Jesus speaks to Jews in Judea and says that his coming is tethered somehow to them being ready to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If there's going to be a religious leader saying, blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord in Jerusalem, then there has to be Jews in Jerusalem, etc. I mean, there, I mean, there's different ways to look at it, but it certainly argues for something other than just a coincidence, statistically. Yeah, and and I guess I guess this program is, is really directed not only to those that that aren't involved in church things or aren't Christians. It's certainly it's certainly helpful to those individuals as well. But I think the main point of this broadcast is to the church. 
And there is a, um, a, a theme or a word or a title, I guess, that, that goes, that is popular among many churches and pastors. And it's called replacement theology. What, what exactly is replacement theology, Jeff? Well, replacement theology argues that uh, whatever promises that were in the Bible that spoke too foreign about the Jew, it doesn't relate to the Jew, it relates to you. Those people are yesterday's news. Uh, Jesus Christ came and uh, Jews said no to Jesus. God said no to the Jews. So God's moved on and divorced Israel and married another woman. Uh, and uh, that, that's more or less the gist of it. So every time uh, one looks at the Hebrew Bible, where there's something there's a promise there that speaks of grace and significance and restoration that doesn't, that's divested of its literal meaning. And it just, it, it's applied in some spiritual sense to the church. There's uh, what you're doing is you're pouring white out all over biblical pages to say, it's not the Jew, it's the church and it's not Israel, it's the church. So replacement theology uh, kind of speaks too foreign about the fact that uh, uh, the church has replaced Israel and that Israel has been deep displaced in God's economy. That's the argument. So if the church has replaced Israel, um, aren't there a lot of specific land promises in the Old Testament made to Israel? Yes, not just made, but made in perpetuity that God says, look, you know, this stuff's going to abide as long as there's a sun and a moon in the sky. Uh, and uh, that, 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 that this, this, this goes in perpetuity that goes to, to the end of time. I mean, in, in, you know, infinity and beyond, to, to quote Buzz Lightyear, you know, it just it goes out. And I, I think one of the verses um, that I've heard in the past that that kind of solidifies the base for this belief, I guess, is, and I'll just read it, Galatians 3, 28 and 29, and I'll get you to break it down for us. And it, the Galatians 3, 28 and 29 states, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So if I just took that verse out of context, Jeff, I would think, well, hey, within the church body, it seems like I am Abraham's seed. I am an heir according to the promise, and the nation of Israel does not factor into that or uh, help, help with the confusion of, of those verses and other verses. Well, I wouldn't want to read too much into it. It certainly is a core value of Paul's because he repeats that at other places. So because he repeats it on a few occasions— um, it, it's something that, that resonates with him, but but he's not, when he writes the Galatians, he's writing about the essence of what it means to be Christian, that when, when someone goes into your church or anybody else's, you don't go, well, that's a Jew, that's a Greek, that's a man, that's a woman, that's a rich person, that's a poor person. His point is it collapses, there's an egalitarian vision um, that, that, that Roman culture was very stratified. There's the elites the plebeians and the slaves, and uh, uh, that that somehow in Christ all of that collapses. When he says there's neither male nor female, you know, that, uh, I mean, there still are men and women around, in case you haven't noticed. Well, I have anyway. And uh, when he says that there's neither rich nor poor, uh, that I've noticed that some people happen to have more mo money than others. And I've noticed that there are Jews around and that there are non-Jews around. But the point is, it, it, it doesn't make any difference. 
uh, if you look at what it means to be Christian, that the, the Christian assembly is egalitarian. And uh, just because I happen to pop out of a, of a Jewish woman's womb that was inseminated by a Jewish man's sperm, I shouldn't presume to think that I'm any better than the person that I'm talking to right now who came from some other genetic equation. That at the end of the day, uh, that we're a fraternity of brothers, a society of equals. That's principally the point that Paul's making in Galatians. And, and he kind of wants to counter arrogance of some people that are pushing, you know, you, you have to believe this, you have to believe that. Kind of sort of the way it happens in Christianity today. People are peddling various doctrines and we're saying, we're the happening act in town. The others are children of a lesser God with a weaker understanding. We're, we're real, we'll full bore authentic Christian. These others are not quite there yet. You know, there's a kind of hubris. And uh, that's really what Paul is after rather than giving some commentary on uh, the Hebrew people and whatever God has in mind for them historically to fulfill purposes promised in the Hebrew Bible. That's not what he's talking about there. He has other fish to fry. Yeah, and, and what I'm getting here is is if you're a Jew born in Israel, in the modern state of Israel, for example, or a Jew born in, in uh, Roman-controlled Israel 2,000 years ago, or a Gentile from outside of that today, you still need the Jewish Messiah. You still need Christ, right? Yes, that's a given. And and I think that's the Paul, the point that that Paul's looking to accentuate there. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, we've talked about replacement theology. I think there's something else called covenant theology uh, about some about the church being exp an expansion of Israel. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think they're more or less related. And let me argue a, a case uh, for replacement theology. People say there's this new doctrine going around, replacement theology, or what they call it, what you will. No, the new doctrine that's running around is arguing the case that, that, that for the nation state of Israel and the Hebrew people, that, 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 that people like me are the new kid on the block, and it emerged in Christian theology for the reasons that you stated. People are saying, well, what's God up to in the world? Look at the modern state of Israel, the miracles there. Maybe God is up to something. Well, wait a minute. What we've heard throughout the generations is that God is through with the Jew. Uh, if that's the case, how do we explain this? And I can, to, to tender a case for replacement, I want to be very sympathetic toward it. Now, you know, if you were around uh, in the first century AD, you discovered that Jewish people were, they lost a significant war in 70 AD. They were driven out of Judea and North Africa in the early second century AD. And there was no Jewish presence in the city, uh, in the land for that matter. And not only would you see the displacement of Hebrew people literally through time and circumstances through century two and century three, you'd see those of Christian denomination gaining more traction in the world, culminating finally in the, the emperor of the civilization saying, wow, I'm going to hop in bed with the Christian story. If you were just looking around at what was happening in the world back then, you would think 
that 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 uh, the church has replaced Israel. So I'm very sensitive to that. Similarly, then, and building upon that, if you look at people that are writing and doing theology, it's the only way it made sense to them. That, uh, you know, if, if, if you're looking at God's love for Abraham and his promise that, 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 that Abraham's kingdom is going to be expanded, you naturally would think this obviously has to do with the church because it is not going to be with the Hebrew people. There is nothing uh, that, that, that gives you any reason to believe that. So I can understand why intelligent people would 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 want to make that stretch because otherwise a reading of the bible isn't credible to them it's incredible uh so if you if you go into the 1900s and bleed into the common era um that i can understand those that argue for replacement theology that had been the happening act in town but then if you look at in the 1800s, some people started arguing, well, wait a minute. If you're going to read the Bible, you got to read the Bible to mean what it says, and you can't twist it, its words uh, to, to, you know, just kind of comport to what you want to say it says, that the literature should be interpreted literally. And they started saying, well, listen, if the Bible is promising a homeland for the Hebrew people— and a Christ's return to the homeland to be greeted by Hebrew people, then that's just got to happen. There was still no reason to say that in, you know, the, the beginning of 1900s, but other than the fact that the Bible said it. But then when you start to see world events and the war and, and the emergence of the nation state and the battles and, and the emergence of, of Hebrew people nationalized in the land, then what happens is you have people that are more firmly articulating something instead of replacement theology. And uh, in any case, so there's just some reflections. You can feel free to take on any part of that or all of it. But uh, so, I mean, I want to be sympathetic to my friends who uh, are, are game to think, well, God is through with the Jew. I get it, but I just don't abide the perspective. Yeah, and I think you mentioned this last time that uh, I'm, I'm not exact, not your exact words, but I'm I'm paraphrasing here that many of the commentaries that many of the great teachers have are before 1948. Yes, and they didn't they didn't see they didn't see the Jews come back into the homeland. Is that correct? Absolutely, and they they, they saw it through a replacement lens. So what happens is. There were people that were seeing it differently, called dispensationalists, that, that, that came into vogue philosophically at the end of the 1800s and early into the 1900s, gaining traction, particularly espoused through conservative um, Christian denominations, uh, uh, you know, through Dallas Theological Seminary, um, principally, though not exclusively. Uh, but uh, all the books that were written... Uh, you know, the people were studying, uh, you know, before then they were all written by people that had a replacement lens. Yeah. And so, so Jeff, you've, you've covered replacement theology and, and in part covenant theology, and you just mentioned dispensationalism. Um, is that the same as premillennial, if I can pronounce it, premillennialism? Is that the same or are they, are they distinct? Uh, go into that just a little bit, those two terms. 
the word millennial comes from a thousand years and it is given traction in Christian understanding because you have this, the devil bounded for a thousand years and then released. And so there's this era of, uh, of God rule on earth, you know, a thousand years. And then there's the battle afterward where he's released and, and summarily dis- destroyed shortly thereafter, subsequent to which you have new heavens and new earth, etc. Now, so millennialism speaks of a thousand years. Now, the, uh, those, the traditional perspective has been, well, you know, the thousand-year period is just symbolic for the church age, you know, Christians, etc. But if, if you're beholden to a literal perspective, then what you have is, uh, if you look at uh, premillennial uh, bases an understanding of a, a coming of Christ uh, before um, the millennial era to then, you know, inaugurate it subsequent to that. It gets a little complex. But millennialism speaks of a thousand-year kingdom. Okay, and, and dispensationalism Basically, it's it's my understanding that the the church and the nation of Israel are distinct. God still has promises for the Jewish people, for the nation of Israel, and the church has not replaced Israel. Is that dispensationalism? Dispensationalism argues that there are promises that God made to the Hebrew people that are going to be fulfilled, and there's a land grant attached to it. That uh, And Christians have trouble understanding it because— you know, Christians are beckoned to get the reward on the other side of the grave. Our commonwealth is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, and Jesus Christ is going to come. He said, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to the place. It's on the other side of the grave. If you look at the promise made to the Hebrew people, it's on this side of the grave. Uh, there's a land grant associated with it. And dispensationalism is is triggered to take the Bible literally. So God made promises to the Hebrew people and he made promises to the church. And what's going, there's different dispensations. There's different, you know, there's different ages. There's different moments. And now in the church age, um, you know, there's, there, it focuses on the church, but the church is going to be raptured, taken away. And, and then we go in, into the you know, the tribulation period, subsequent to that, the millennial era, there's different, you know, dispensationalism kind of hearts to a periodization of history. And uh, those with the dispensationalist grid are minded to uh, say right now, yes, you, you do see this focus on the church, not to the exclusion of the Jews, but it's referred to as the church age. And, uh, but then Christ is going to come and, and take his church and, and uh, but then we're going to carry on historically to the next dispensation. And and you know you explaining it like that, um, one promise is it, it helped me understand it better. That one promise is on this side of heaven, basically a land grant and other promises, and the other promise is on the other side of heaven. So that I, to me, I'm, I'm a visual person and I can visualize that better. So th- a great explanation there. Uh, Jeff, what else? Go ahead. It's not from me. It was uh, uh, from someone else that uh, 
W.D. Davies at, at Duke University spoke of the, the territorial dimension to Hebraic religion where it's tethered to real estate. That is so much the case in the Hebrew Bible. Um, that, and that, that, that explains in part why Christians have trouble coming to terms with maybe some of what we're talking about here, because the Christian isn't tethered to real estate in some religious sense. That definitely makes uh, much more sense to me now. Um, Jeff, I'd like to talk about uh, the Jews, Israel. It seems to be a uniformity of hatred. Uh, for example, you can have a clan member who hates the Jews. You could also have a devout um, black Muslim who hates the Jews. And you have these two enemies who hate each other, but their common hate is for the for the Jew. And it, it, talk about that a little bit. Zechariah 12, 3, it talks about uh, Israel being a burdensome stone. Uh, what does that mean today uh, when Israel, and I'll let you explain this, but it seems like Israel has enemies all around the nation of Israel, that the Jews have been hated. Uh, there are a lot of hate crimes on Jews here in America today. You see that almost in the news every day. What is it about the hatred of the Jewish nation that's so uniform around the world, if that makes any sense. Well, let me answer the question by telling you someone else who asked it and wrote on it, Mark Twain. Uh, when his daughter Susie died, right at the turn of the 1900s, if we're going back, you know, quite some time, he takes a, a trip to Europe. You know, Mark Twain, this literary American genius, American literary genius, and he's in Austria and he observes there uh, in the parliament now, he's going to write about it. He says, you know, there's six or seven different languages that are spoken by people in parliament, a variety of nationalities. They, they, they don't agree on anything. There's only one thing they have in common. They all absolutely and in no uncertain terms hate the Jews. And so he was curious, what is it about the Jews that invokes this ire? That's the question that you're asking. What is that? And I'll give you his perspective. And it lacks a spiritual component that I'll tap, but it's insightful nonetheless, in my opinion. Uh, he wrote a series of articles to, to Harper's Magazine on the Jewish question. And he's reflecting on why do people hate the Jews? Now, Twain observes, if you look at Jews, uh, they uh, Jews aren't, if you look at the prisons, it's not like there's Jews in jails all over the place. And you go, there's such a criminal element, man. You know, we're really mad at them. We're <laughs> just bludgeoning culture. No, you don't find Jews in jails. And he says, if you look at the welfare rolls, you know, you don't find Jews on welfare rolls. Now, Twain observes, you know, Jews can fall upon hard times, but the Jewish community takes care of their own. So he says, why is it that people hate the Jews? It's not that they're a criminal element and that they're taking advantage of us. And it's not that they're a leeching element, that they're just lethargic and sifting away from us. He asked the question, if those aren't the reasons why, why do people hate the Jews? Twain says a reason why people hate the Jews is because it's very, very hard to compete with Jews. You know, you began this blog by noting about Israel with a stellar economy as compared to everything around it. 
Twain said the reason why people hate Jews, in his opinion, is because they can't compete with them. But then what Twain does is he takes a little further. What's the essence of good business? And the essence of good business is trust. That is to say, if people are successful, it's because they're delivering a good product on time at a fair market value. And those that do that, they tend to buoy up economically. Uh, and for his two cents, Twain says the reason why the Jews are hated is because people have trouble competing with them. And the reason why they have trouble competing with them is because of the integrity that's associated with them. In any case, I think that's interesting, and I think it's insightful, but there's a spiritual component, too. You know, if God has a call on you, hell has an assignment against you. And I think there's this spiritual edge to it all through time and circumstance that it contributes to a hatred of the Hebrew people that wouldn't otherwise be there. Yeah, and it seems like it's it's a hatred of, of the enemy against God's covenant people, if you will, as well. And anything that, that God's plan uh, has for humanity, the enemy, the Satan, tries to destroy that. Uh, and, and again, you know, it just harkens back to me in, in Ephesians. It talks about that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but there's something behind that. There's a spiritual forces that we can't see that are well at work um, trying to thwart God's plans and God's, um, the things that he plans and, and the good things that he has for humanity. So, uh, Jeff, the, the, are there dangers of dividing the land of Israel? And the reason I ask this question, within the past week or so, the Prime Minister of Israel, Lapid, I think that's the pronunciation, uh, President Biden, and also uh, those two main figures, I guess, went in front of the United Nations, and they basically called for a two-state solution for the nation of Israel. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the Old Testament speaks against that, speaks against any man trying to divide God's land promises for the Jews, the nation of Israel. I think possibly Joel chapter 3 talks about that as well. Speak to the dangers of trying to divide the nation of Israel a little bit, please. Well, First of all, biblical literature casts a vision for Israel, and it delineates the boundaries. Um, and that's ultimately what was given. And in a prophetic sense, that's ultimately what will be. But politicians don't work with the Bible in hand. They work on the streets as it is right now. And, and, and if someone wanted to just say, well, forget the Arab people, you know, it's... Uh, you know, then there's not going to be any political conversation. There, 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 there's not going to be any chance for progress. I think in terms of for one united nation state, it's going to take God to do that. No, 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 no president's going to negotiate it. Uh, no ambassador is going to articulate. It's just not going to happen. In fact, the Jews didn't want it. I mean, if you look at the beginning of the nation state, the way it was, it was carved up into two states. And the reason why it didn't go that way is the Arabs didn't want it, that uh, Jews were in the land prior to 1948 and purchased real estate. And uh, it was a British holding. The British turned it over to the UN and said, you decide what to do with it. We don't want to manage this part of the world anymore. 
So what the British did is they just looked at, well, wait a minute, here are these Hebrew people, they've, they've purchased this land. So the land was kind of carved up. The lands that they purchased legitimately with title in hand, we're going to make that the state. And then the others will be the, the Arab state. They argued for a two-state solution. And the, the Jews said, fine, we'll take it. Uh, it's the Arab Muslim nations round about it that said no. So they went to war and war and war. And Jews won those wars. And the land expanded to its current form. Even beyond that, uh, you know, for instance, in, in war, the Sinai Peninsula, which was an Egyptian holding, was lost and was an, was an Israeli holding. When uh, the Egyptians signed a peace treaty with the Jewish state, they gave Sinai back. You know, that, that uh, so what, what Israel did is they said, okay, here, take the West Bank to Fatah, but it didn't get peace in exchange for it. Okay, you want the Gaza Strip? Take it. But we didn't get peace in exchange for it. So this swapping land for peace hasn't worked, but you have politicians that haven't given up on the possibilities. The question is, is how do we assuage aggravations? And and uh, I think if you're going around, you know, with an open Bible in hand and preaching one state, you're, you're not going to make any progress. And I don't expect politicians to be biblical scholars. I expect them to be politicians. So I understand the whole two-state world. Um, at the end of the day, however, and really literally at the end of days, um, there won't be two states. Uh, just piggybacking on that for just a moment, um, is there a danger um, for, for a nation state or uh, countries for, I don't know, politicians possibly for for seeking or signing contracts that divide God's land is is there a, is there a danger there uh, from God's word? You know, it's I mean, it's it's an easy question. Once once you observe that you shouldn't divide the land, then the question is, are there punishment for those that do? I'll let God decide how He meets out punishments. Um, you know, for well-intended people to try and find a way through a thorny abyss. Uh, I, I, I just tip my hat to those that try and, and, and uh, uh, to look for some kind of concession. You know, if, 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 you go into, if, if you go into any Jewish home, any standing dwelling, there's a mezuzah on the door. It's a little box and it has parchments in it and it's there diagonally on the door, always diagonally on the doorpost. And Jews will kiss it, put their hand and kiss and the question is, why is it diagonal? Some rabbis thought it should be placed on it horizontally. Others said vertically. The argument, let's put it diagonally, because we learned sometimes we're just going to have to compromise. And so that's 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 the way I look at that. You know, it, it's um, I'll let God decide who He judges negatively and punitively. But you know, if there if there are well-intended uh, you know politicians that are trying to just de-escalate a situation. And if they're saying if, if that's a way to do it, then, you know, I understand, you know, what they're trying to do. It'll just take God, who's greater than a politician, to go do the ultimate answer. I'll let God figure out how to do that. Politicians aren't God. They're just trying to calm it down. And and uh, I, I just tip my hat to those that are trying to calm down things. And, you know, de-escalation is good, to my way of thinking. Now, you can disagree. Someone else can disagree. But it's the way I see it. Well, certainly, thank you for that wisdom there. And and 
I'd like to maybe conclude with uh, Genesis 12, 3. And this is uh, another, and it's another piggyback on the last question, I guess, Jeff. Uh, Genesis 12, 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And we know that is not only to Abraham, but to his descendants, to his descendant Israel as well, and to his children. And we know that speaking to the nation of Israel. Um, let's let's break apart the f- the first part of that. How how can we as a church, as the church today, how can we bless Israel? Well, certainly, you know, arguing for its you know abolishment philosophically, theologically through replacement theology doesn't bring any blessings. <laughs> There's no blessing in that. Um, I think for Bible believers to stand with biblical vision uh, is helpful to stand with, to pray for. You know, it says in Scripture, you know, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who prosper love you. And uh, I think to pray for and I think to be supportive of, too. You know, I think Christians would do well to visit Israel you know, put their tourist dollars there, that's helpful, uh, to support ministries that are looking to be helpful to Israel, I think is, is a very good thing. You know, there are big ministries, John Hagee, you know, Christians United for Israel, and people draw millions and millions of dollars, and that funnels into schools and hospitals and purchasing ambulances and other things in Israel. Uh, that's a good thing to be sure. I like to see supporting ministries that spiritually are reaching out to preach the good news. You know, there's there's Jewish ministries that are undersupported. You can go to a missions conference in a church, you know, and there's missionaries there taking the gospel to Burkina Faso and Lagos, Nigeria, and here's a missionary from Haiti, and all that's well and good, but you know, far and few between is any ministry outreach to the Jewish people. It's just basically neglected. And I think that's problematic personally. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something interesting there. It, we, we tend to think of overseas missions as, as the four corners of the world. And, and certainly that's true, but we seldom think take the gospel or support gospel missions in the heart of Israel to the Jews. And they need Jesus just like anyone else. And your wife has a ministry that does that. Is that correct? Yes, Sar Shalom Israel. Uh, She does that. And, uh, you know, I mean, I work in television uh, that 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 makes its way into Europe and Israel and and, uh, you know, all over America uh, through Daystar Christian Television and other networks. So but I didn't want to lead with that because it sounds like I'm I'm responding to an earnest question in a way that's self-serving. Um, oh, here's how you can really, you know, support me, support her. I don't want to do that. I just, uh, uh, you know, I just want to make the principle rather than try and. Yeah, and, and I completely understand that. But I'm, I'm the one that's that's pushing this because I, I certainly support. Uh, I, I, I'm in agreement with with your wife's ministry, but also what you do visually on television. And you, you mentioned you're with Daystar. Talk about the our Jewish Roots program just a little bit. Well, it was founded by a guy, Zola Levitt. And, uh, you know, when, when, when Christian television is just beginning to gain traction, 
we don't even have the big networks yet, you know, or it's just beginning decades ago. Uh, my, the producer, Ken Berg, who went and took a degree in, 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 uh, in media, uh, kind of talked Zola into going on television and he'd go to Israel. And I mean, the name Zola Levitt sounds Jewish. You look at him, he looks Jewish. He would just film on location in these places in Israel. And he'd talk about those places from a Jewish perspective. And people were like, wow, they never saw that before. And the program Zola Levitt Presents is one of the longest programs in Christian broadcasting history. You know, TV programs go for a couple, you know, they go for a couple seasons and they're, you know, they're out. I mean, that program has been going 40 years. Now, Zola died, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, uh, um, the TBN said, you know, you really need to change the name. Now, when he died, they asked me to step in there and do the television. And I did it for five years and then pulled away to focus on my professorship elsewhere. Uh, but then they asked me to come back. The producer did. So I'm about four years deep again doing it. But it's called Our Jewish Roots. And principally, what we want to do through it is to carry on. I don't wear robes and the like. Uh, but I, you know, go to these places in Israel and not just Israel, the Bible lands. It can be... Uh, uh, Turkey, it can be Greece, it can be Italy, wherever there's biblical stories, uh, Egypt, and uh, go to these archaeological sites and offer a telling of it as a theologian from a Jewish perspective. And our Jewish roots is all about that. We want to help Jewish people come to know Jesus, and, and we want to help Jesus people come to know Jews. It's like a two-part play. It's like an Acts it's like a play with two acts divided by an intermission. There's the Old Testament story, and some people just watch the Old Testament story, and then they leave. They don't go to the New Testament story. That's the Jewish position. And then there's Christians. They just have the New Testament act. They don't go back, and they don't they don't sit in for the first act. Uh, but, you know, we try and just tell the whole story from, like my wife says, from Genesis to Maps. <laughs> I like that from Genesis to maps. That's that's pretty clear and concise. It it covers a lot of ground, right? That's Dr. Barry K. Seif. My that, boss. My hero. Boss. My hero. Well, you've got the right perspective there, Dr. Jeff. I, I completely understand. And uh so Jeff, you're gonna be filming in Israel soon, is that correct? Well, let's see. It's uh uh, we're just a few days away to like take off again. I'm usually there two or three times a year doing a series. And I'm going to provide all of the links to our Jewish roots and, and, and other links as well. That some of the things that, that Dr. Jeff has brought up in our discussion, but if you're listening uh, via podcast or watching via YouTube or rumble or something like that, click on the links below and just explore the, the catalog of videos for example, that our Jewish roots has, because it, it goes back to the late 80s when Zola was teaching. So you're going to find probably hundreds of different videos, different resources, uh, different teaching episodes. And I, I think that it will bless you tremendously. Uh, so I'll definitely provide the links at the bottom of the video. But Jeff, is there anything else that you want to add to about the importance of the nation of Israel? No, not really. Um because I think I've said it, you know, I just try and answer your questions. You know, I hope that, that uh, uh, people will, you know, take seriously the, uh, the biblical narrative, you know, from Genesis to maps, as my wife would put it. And uh, I would hope that individuals would, would be supportive of the Jewish people, of the Jewish people's bid in the ancestral homeland. 
Uh, it's like a story of a turtle returning to its shell. The two really go together. You know, the Jewish people is the living organism. Uh, the, the the shell is where it's it's encased within. And, and there's a story there that goes back to the beginning of God's dealing with you, mankind, and extends to the end. And, and uh, I'm pleased to see more and more Christians be supportive of the Jewish people. It's still way too few. So uh, I'm just appreciative for any friend we get. And thank you for being here. Well, absolutely. And uh, it was a pleasure to have you on. And I just encourage the folks to click on the links below and start your exploration if you haven't before in our Jewish roots. But uh, Dr. Jeff, it was a pleasure and honor. I'm going to ask you to stay on for a couple of minutes after the conclusion. But thank you so much for doing this today. Pleasure. Absolutely. And until next time.